Well, good morning. If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Titus, chapter 3, first two verses, continuing our series in this, what's called a pastoral epistle, the Apostle Paul to one of the uh, pastors, to a man helping churches establish pastors. We're trying to glean from it truths about this church and what God would have us to, to, to believe about him and how to live in light of the grace that he's shown us. We're going to ask God for help in that one more time as we pray, and then we'll dive into Titus chapter 3. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us to mean what we just sang, that you would take our lives and that you would set them apart for you, that you would take every moment that we have and that we would see them as stewardship opportunities for honoring you pray that you would help us to use our hands and our feet, our voice and our lips. All of it would be pleasing to you, that we would not give ourselves to, to sin, but rather that we would obey you in all things. Pray all of our silver and gold and other forms of wealth, Lord, that we would recognize that it's all given to us by your grace, and that we would steward it in a way that honors you. We pray that our, our intellect, the way we think, our will, what we want, our hearts, what we desire, our, our, all of it would be surrendered. That you make us a surrendered people. That you would take our, our love and help us to not love the world and the things of the world, to not love our own ambitions and desires, but for it all to be shaped and molded by Jesus. That we would see him for who he is and that he would be our great pleasure and treasure and that everything that we would do would be a response to the love that he has shown to us that we would be moved by mercy and grace and that it would move us to, to show grace toward others in our good deeds. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, early Christians were well known throughout the Roman Empire. Uh, and it was, it was a tension because in one sense they were largely despised because of their beliefs and their uh, their. their their morality, the way that they lived, it was in stark contrast to the, to the Roman Empire in the way of, of, of evil. But they were also admired. And they were admired for something in particular. Uh, their fame wasn't because all of their favored politicians were held office. It wasn't because their wealth-funded multi-million dollar worship facilities. Nor was it because they had famous Preachers whose social media accounts were, were trending. What set early Christians apart were their good deeds. In the 4th century, this is not just in the 4th century, this was all throughout early church history, but in the 4th century there was, a, um, there was a famine and a war that ravished the city of Caesarea. And it left the, the city just... Yeah, on its heels, just weak and broken. Well, in the midst of that, a plague broke out and hit the city. And despair and fear, as you can imagine, just it abounded. And it resulted in many people who lived in the city fleeing the city to go to the countryside to try and find some sort of, of safety. But there was one group who didn't leave the city. The Christians. Eusebius, who was a historian of the time, writes this. During the plague, all day long, some of the Christians tended to the dying and to their burial. Countless numbers with no one to care for them. Others gathered together from all parts of the city, a multitude of those who uh, withered from famine and distributed bread to them all. Because of their compassion in the midst of the plague, the Christians' deeds were on everyone's lips, and they glorified the God of the Christians. Another writer, Julian, who was an emperor who was not a Christian, he was actually an apostate from Christianity, he was a pagan, he loved paganism, but he said this about Christians, it is their benevolence to strangers their care for the graves of the dead and the, the pretended holiness of their lives. So he even says their holiness was a front. That they have done 
most to increase their beliefs. I believe that we, the pagans, ought really and truly practice every one of their virtues. He says we should be more like the Christians, a pagan atheist emperor. And I say atheist, he believed in the pagan gods. Early Christians were known for their good deeds. They were set apart because of them. The world thought their, thought their beliefs were looney tunes, thought it was crazy, called them bigots, thought they were you know, hindered progress, all of those sorts of things. Same things as today, but, but the Christians were marked by tangible love in such a way that the world couldn't ignore it. They, they were set apart as distinct and unique and intriguing. Their lives commended their Lord, which is what the book of Titus is all about. It's all about the way that Christians are supposed to live out the truths of the gospel in such a way that it commends by good deeds a pathway for the gospel to be heard and to be believed. You remember that Paul sent Titus to Crete to help churches establish pastors to ensure that good doctrine and good deeds were abounding. Grace, and believing it, produces good works. That's been all through the letter, and that's what we're going to look at this morning in Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Let's listen to this together. Titus chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them, the Christians, the churches, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Seven commands in these two verses. You'll notice that they're all under the, the first word, the first exhortation there, remind them. Now, as we dive into this, I think it's really important for us to understand the context that these seven commands sit. They're not the only commands in the book. There's lots of commands. But the context is really important. If you look to what was right before this, verse 11 of chapter 2, the grace of God has appeared, verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, to be a people who are zealous for good works, verse 14. Grace has appeared and it changes us and makes us zealous for good works. Then we have these seven commands. And then next week's text, down in verse 7, being justified by his grace, we must be careful to devote yourselves to good works. Grace and good works go together. They're inseparable for the Christian. Because of the grace we receive in Christ, it moves us to good works. This is our big idea this morning. Show God's grace to others by remembering God's grace toward you. Show God's grace to others by remembering God's grace toward you. If you want to get even more specific, show God's grace to others by good works, by remembering God's grace toward you. Seven commands. Three, one, remind them, he says. Paul tells Titus to make his ministry one of reminding. He says, tell them the truths they've already been told. Put, put the teachings on repeat for them, Titus. Paul knows that the believers are already going to know these seven things. None of this is going to be new for them. Part of that is probably because Paul and, uh, had been there before and had done some ministry when the church was planted, but also because these are basic applications and implications of following Jesus for every believer. This is standard teaching here in verses 1 and 2. Every church throughout the world would have heard this and known this as basic Christianity 101. This is what it means to follow Jesus. It changes the way you relate to everybody, every authority above you, every neighbor around you, every friend, every foe. All of your relationships are changed by grace because you've met Jesus 
He changes us. Much of ministry, whether you are a pastor or not a pastor, is the reminding of one another of things you already know. This is why you read the Bible every single day, even if you've read it before. Reading the same books, some of us, hundreds of times. Why? Because every, every situation we're in, every circumstance, every season of life, every different bit of maturity, it all, the Word hits us in different ways all the time, and we need to be reminded. Ten times in the New Testament, leaders speak of reminding the truth. It's because we're prone to forgetting Legend has it that a church member of Martin Luther, the great reformer, once approached him and said, Pastor, why do you preach the gospel to us week after week? To which Luther replied, because week after week you forget it. Isn't that just like us? That we need to be reminded of the truths. And this is how Paul leads this slew of exhortations. Titus, tell them what we told them. Tell them again. Seven commands. Number one. Be submissive to authorities. Be submissive to authorities. Verse 1, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. Cretan Christians were to be distinct from average Cretan citizens. They're supposed to look different because the Cretans were known to be anything but submissive to the authorities. One historian said, Cretans were notoriously turbulent and quarrelsome and impatient of all authority. They were constantly involved in insurrections, murders, and civil wars. I'm glad it's nothing like our country. Cretans had an attitude about them. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. He says, well, the Christians who are in Crete are supposed to look different than the world. They're supposed to stand in stark contrast. They are to be submissive. The word means to place yourself under the authority of another. Christians are not to be known as resistant rebels, but rather as submissive servants. And the context for this submission, it's a tough one for these these Christians. The Roman Empire, as I mentioned earlier, hated Christians. They were suspicious of them. They considered them to be a hindrance to progress. They considered them to be unpatriotic because they wouldn't worship the gods who blessed the nations. They were considered to be blasphemous because they wouldn't worship the gods who blessed the nations. But their lives, the lives of Christians... There was something about those lives that were different that just didn't fit the mold and it it bothered the Romans. Their lives challenged the opinions of the world. 1 Peter 2.13 says it this way, Be subject for the Lord's sake, for, for, for for the sake of the Lord, be subject to every human institution, whether to the emperor as supreme or to governors for This is the will of God. You want to know what God's will is for your life? Be submissive to authorities over you. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. He says, you want to silence your critics? Be submissive to the authorities that are over you. Christians are to be the best of citizens. Because we know that God has established government for good purposes. And because of that, we don't resist it. This is a basic Christian teaching. Some of y'all already on edge with all your, yeah, but what abouts? Just eat this for a moment, okay? (laughs) Jesus is your Lord if you're a Christian. And the way you obey him, his will for you is by obeying the governing authorities that he has placed over you in his providence. You're like, oh, that only says it twice in the Bible. You only need to say it once, but I'll give you the third. Here we go, Romans 13. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Every governing authority is established by the providence and wisdom of God. 
for his purposes. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. For he, meaning the person who's in authority, is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Therefore, one must be in subjection. Because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God. Pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. God calls his people to obey him by submitting to governing authorities. Now some of y'all are probably like, oh, listen, Paul must have had it easy in Rome. They must have been easy leaders to follow. Just do a little bit of history and you'll learn that's not the case. Roman emperors who ruled the world at this time were not good dudes. They were wicked of wicked. They were corrupt of corrupt. Bribery, tyranny, they were oppressive. They were evil people. Paul, the same guy who's writing this, and Peter, who wrote that other thing, both of them will be executed. Paul have his head cut off by Nero and Nero and Peter will be crucified upside down by the same emperor. That's who he's talking about. That's who he's saying, submit to them. And he does not make exceptions here for, for believers just because governments are, are corrupt. Christians are not to be marked by rebellion. Now, I was really tempted to not give any nuances here, and I really want to just to bother everybody. But I do think it's helpful to think through, okay, should Christians ever disobey the government? And I need to stop, though. Before you get excited about all of these, please hear what was just said. Do not allow your American spirit to overcome the Christian spirit. Americanism is not the same thing as Christianity. Should Christians ever disobey the government? Certainly yes at times. When? Well, number one, when they command you to disobey God, you must disobey God in this. Renounce Jesus as Lord. Or when they forbid you to obey God. God says evangelize. They say you may not evangelize. And you would just repeat what Peter and the apostles said in Acts chapter 5, 29, we must obey God rather than men. Do with us what you will. You can have our heads, but you will not have our allegiance. We pledge allegiance to Christ. He is our Lord. Don't get it twisted. So remember that. Yes, if they explicitly command you. Now this is where everybody can find a way to be like, well, I feel uncomfortable. You feeling uncomfortable is not at all what's in view. God does not care about your comfort. I'm sorry. It's just not his priority. Jesus did not say, follow me and I will make you comfortable. That's not what this is about. This is about him being glorified. So certainly yes in some cases. Probably yes in some others. For instance, Christians in Nazi Germany under Hitler. They certainly must not have participated in the war against the Jews and the Holocaust there. Is it permissible to assassinate Hitler like Bonhoeffer tried to? Some would be able to maybe make a good argument that it was the right thing. Others would say no. And I think it's a, there's some tension there and it requires wisdom. Lesser than that, you know, m maybe. Are, are there oppressive governments? Most certainly. Every, every government is going to have corruption that you will have to endure and there will be Rules that you don't like, laws that are unjust, certainly. If there's ways to work against those, do that. But is revolution warranted? Well, I would say to that, even if a government is doing evil, you must weigh, is a revolt and the death and the mayhem that could come from that, could it result in a greater evil? Just because the government is carrying out injustice doesn't necessarily mean revolution is justified. This is where much wisdom is needed in every age. 
to discern if the revolt is proportional to the evil that the government is doing and if indeed it would be pleasing to God. And I would just say, you must be very careful with all that. Our country, sure, there's lots of stuff that's wicked. If you're like, we need to revolt with what's going on now, I think you have, I, I don't think you're seeing reality well. I'm happy to talk with you about that. Does that not mean, I am not saying we should not push back on evil. There is evil. There is mm, systems of evil and injustice and all of that is certainly, and yes, in all of the means that are provided for us, that we can do in an honorable way, push back. Yes. But some of us are tempted to nuance this exhortation to the point that it lacks the piercing power that it is intended to. Paul wrote this under Nero. We've never, never, ever had a Nero here. And we just need to remember that. And if your first response is, yeah, well, we, we could soon, I'm happy to talk with you after service. I'm just saying that should not be your first response. Please, may God give us wisdom to live out wisely these words. We honor the government because we honor Jesus. Our protests are peaceful. Our taxes are paid. Christians are marked by submission, not insurrection. Number two, be obedient. Be obedient. 3-1. Remind them to be obedient. This command and the others that are coming after it can, can all probably in one way, shape, or form be in view of addressing how you relate to, to the government. I think this one probably is still uniquely tied to it, where I think the others give way to the broader applying to all of your neighbors. So I think it's appropriate here to read, be obedient to the government. So there's a sub submissive sort of spirit, but there's also an obedient, there's obedient action. Be obedient to the government, I think is in view here. Meaning Christians must not be law breakers. We do not take the law into our own hands. To say I'm a Christian and he is my Lord and because of that he has made me a citizen of heaven so I don't have to obey earthly laws, people do that, that is not Christian. You have verses right here that say do not live that way. That's a sinful posture. Christians may not agree with or approve of particular laws or the way the government uses our tax dollars but it must not lead to us disobeying clear commands here. So practically, a, a posture of submissive obedience, it, what it does is we've already seen in these examples from history, it paves the way for opportunities to, good, to do good. Ben, uh, well, uh, James read the text and Ben prayed about it this morning, that 1 Timothy 2.1, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, for all who are in high positions, that... We may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Obedience to the government paves the way for peaceful and obedient living. It, it doesn't make us more of a target than we would be if we were rebellious and disobedient and a, an irreverent bunch. Instead, it paves the way for more good works. It, as you were, you fly under the radar. And all you're known for is, listen, those Christians are annoying. Their beliefs wear us out. But you know what? They do so much good. So let's just leave them alone. That's why obedient citizens are gospel-minded citizens. I figure I would just say all of these things in one sermon so we can just get all the emails out. Just info at drbc.org. Here we go. So this, this text and others like it informed our response to the government during COVID. So none of us enjoyed that season. It was a very hard season for lots of reasons. It was, some people lost dear loved ones during that season. There was a lot of fear. There was a lot of confusion. There was a lot of really difficult waters to navigate. It was hard for your elders. I'm thankful to have served with them. They, I think everyone was prayerful and tried, okay? One of our aims in the midst of the whole thing was that we want to make decisions in such a way that 
love one another, that love our neighbors ourselves, and that obey the government as we're commanded to here. So just because there were particular mandates uh, that, we, that we did not, so, so for instance, we didn't all like the, the mandate to not gather, but it didn't mean that we could just dismiss it. We found ways around it, we gathered in the parking lot, we did as best as we could, right? Um, but we, we were very convinced, and still are convinced, it was not persecution against churches. What happened during that time was not persecution against churches. If they are enforcing something at a theater and Taco Bell and churches, it's not persecution. Now, I understand that it pressed in on some areas, though, that were really important to think about, the way we worship. And I will say that um, certainly the issue of vaccines began to press in all the more into areas of obedience of conscience for some, and that's where the elders needed to aim to navigate that. That's why we didn't have an official stance on vaccines and all that kind of stuff. It was a case-by-case conscience thing that we needed to navigate with wisdom, and those are tricky waters. Did we do it well? On the last day, we'll find out. But we did not think we had the right as Christians to just say, I don't care what the government says about anything. I think we have to engage thoughtfully and wisely. Now, I I will also say this. There will be times, I suspect, I mean, if I don't get fired for this sermon, and the next 20 years I stay here, I suspect the next 20 years there will be some very hard decisions that this church will have to make in regards to the way that we respond to mandates that come from the government. I'm certain. I mean, I would be amazed if we don't lose our tax-exempt status at some point. I'll be amazed. if there's. It, I suspect it's only getting harder. There will be hills that this church has to choose to die on. We did not think that masks was the one. We're, we're going to figure out those waters. Pray for us to have wisdom, and may we all have charity toward one another in the midst of it. But Christians are largely, overwhelmingly, to be marked as submissive, obedient people in the way that relate to the government. Number three, be ready for good works. Three, one, remind them to be ready for every good Work. The word means to be prepared, to be eagerly looking for opportunity to do good. This exhortation was essential for these Christians because the Cretan culture was known as lacking good works. You remember chapter 1, verse 12, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And false teachers who were infiltrating the church embodied this cultural motto, chapter 1, verse 16. They profess to know God, but deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. False teachers aim to help you sin. You know that's what a false teaching is, right? False teaching is a theological justification to allow you to do what you want to do. False teaching always aims at finding a way to say God says it's okay for you to be you and follow your heart and live any way that you want to. But God liberates his people from laziness toward God's commands. We are reminded that God created us for good works and God saved us for good works. You are saved for good works. Listen to this, Ephesians 2 10, 8, 8 through 10, by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we would walk in them. So Christians are not saved by good works. So if you're here visiting today and you're not a Christian, you're like, what's the difference between Christianity and every other religion? Every other religion says the way that you get spiritual advancement or make it to heaven is that you do enough good works to earn the favor of God, and he says, fine, I'll let you in. Christianity says that's impossible because God's holy, and we have sin, and we can never be as good as God. So... God sends his son to come among us as the God-man. He lives a perfect life, dies the death for all of our sins, rises from the dead, and now gives forgiveness of sins. That's how we're made right with him. That's called grace. God does for us what we 
we can't do for ourselves and what we could never earn or deserve. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And in a sense, this may sound like heresy at first, but hang with me, it's not. Good works are salvation. Good works are salvation. You're like, what do you mean? What I mean is this. Sinning, doing evil works, is spiritual slavery. It leads to death and despair and being dehumanized. If you think about your, your life before the Lord and the sin that you used to do, it stole life from you. It, was, it, was, it killed you. Salvation is when Jesus saves us from that way of living. You're now free to obey God, which is, obedience is the pathway to joy and fulfillment. In that sense, it's salvation. You're free as you obey. Not your own desires, but God's. This is what Jesus taught, John 15, 11. He says, I have given you these commandments that my joy may be in you and your joy may be made full. You want full joy? You want the abundant life? It's through obeying God's word in good works. That's what I mean when I say that good works are salvation. So Paul's telling Titus, tell the churches, tell them to pursue true joy giving, Christ imitating good works, to be ready, to be eager to do good to one another, to be eager, looking for opportunities to do good to their neighbor. This is the way of Christ. Good works is simply obedience. It's love expressed in deeds. It's walking out in the morning and seeing your neighbor's trash can knocked over and you'd be like, oh, bad day for him to start. Oh, you get some gloves on and you go over and you pick it up for him. Because you're a Christian. You take meals to those who are needy. Because you're a Christian. You show hospitality to, to, to visitors and those who are in need because you're a, you're a Christian. You give generously of your time and, and expertise to people who may need it because you're a, you're a Christian. You help people move if you're able because you're, you're a Christian. You mow somebody's lawn who maybe has just had surgery or is just in a, in a really hard time and you just want to bless them because you're a Christian. Maybe you're gifted with numbers and you want to help, help Christians to steward their money better so you help them develop a budget. You sit down with them for a couple times and help them think through it because you're a Christian. You, you clean the home of the, the grieving. One of our sisters, Tawanda Barber, who had about a year ago, had just gone through some horrific losses in her family, and she had buried several family members. In the midst of that, she heard about another one of our families in the church who had just suffered great loss, and she offered, she said, can I just go over and clean their house for them? Why? Because she's a Christian. Christians are eager to do good works to others and for others because Christ has done good for us. And this is where I want to ask us the question, do you have bandwidth and margin to be ready to do what this command tells you to do? It's interesting. I, I was recently had a couple trips, one back to Texas, one to South Carolina for our family vacation. First one was for a wedding, family vacation. And when I went back to both of those places, it was, I I saw uniquely the potential sins of every of those cultures. So in Texas, the part we were in, apathy is the, is the culture. We'll get to it tomorrow because everything moves so slow. At the beach, it was escapism. We're going to come down here and get away from all of our problems. Here the cultural sin is ambition. People come here to change the world. You, you, you're, you're, you're high capacity people, right? Well... Are you so high capacity and is your schedule so full, and this is convicting for me, yes, that you might not be free to obey this command because your schedule is just too full and too tight? Is your schedule so full that you can't slow down to serve others? Might be a good thing to talk about as a family or with friends over lunch. Number four, speak evil of no one. Speak evil of no one. 
The word here is slander or malign, to speak against someone to, to harm their reputation. A few weeks ago when we did the Ten Commandments series, we talked about the uh, um, do not bear false witness against your neighbor. And we, we talked about how it's, a, it's similar to this command right here, to not slander. Remember, I don't know if you remember the, the Greek word here for slander is blasphema. What word do we get? It's related to blasphemy. So to blasphemy is to speak untrue things about God. Well, six times in the New Testament, the same word is used about speaking evil about image bearers. Untrue, deceitful, malicious ways of speaking about others. It's a, it's a serious sin. God calls us to honor his name and to honor the names or the reputations of fellow image bearers. Imagine a world where everyone was cautious with their words when they spoke about other people. No bashing, no trashing, no gossip, no slander. Always careful to protect one another's honor and reputation. Not as a covering for dangerous evil, but as a way with dealing with both friends and foes, allies and opponents in a way that showed honor to them. That is what it should be like to deal with a Christian. Fellow church members, your neighbors, your co-workers, the world should not fear having their name in a Christian's mouth. Christians must be known for not speaking ill of unbelieving neighbors or of fellow Christians. Rather, we're supposed to be marked by charity and truth. Beware of taking pleasure in speaking evil about others. Now, some of you are like, well, I'm glad I never do that. Next point, please. Be careful of how self-justifying you can be. You're like, well, it's true. Okay. But it doesn't mean you have to say it. Would people want, well, let me put it this way. Would you want other people to talk about you the way that you talk about other people? Is your idle speech, your chatter, is it honoring to other people? One of the easiest sins to fall into is speaking negatively of other people. It is an evil sin, and it's an easy one to fall into. What they wear, how they speak, how they raise their kids, what mistakes they made. I don't know if you know this or not now, God bless them, but, and then, you know, sins they've committed, embarrassing failures. There's something that's just so easy about that. Ask God to give you sobriety to hear what he hears when you speak about others. Would, would you say what you say if they were right next to you is always a wonderful test. And if you're like, yeah, I would, be like, tone that down, son. And you're like, hold on. Like, is that, is that the right posture? Would you say it if Jesus was sitting next to you? Particularly, be careful in the internet age where the, the screen tempts you to dehumanize people. To where you would not say it face to face. Screen courage is not a godly thing. Jesus warns us, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Use your words well. Aim to encourage others, not speak evil. Build up, don't tear down. Speak kindly of opponents in every way that you are able. In debate, avoid getting personal if you are able. Watch some of the presidential debates that are forthcoming. I trust you'll see good examples to avoid. Because it paves the way for the gospel. If some of those people... After saying the things that they say, and be like, oh, by the way, I'm a Christian. Do you want to know about Jesus? Be like, I don't want whatever Jesus you got. It's supposed to commend the way for the gospel. Number five, avoid quarreling. Remind them to avoid quarreling. To not be contentious or fighting. Paul is calling Christians to avoid being contentious. To not always be looking for a fight. Not always trying to prove that you're right. Rather... Rather than quarreling, to pursue peace. Remember that peace is fruit of the Holy Spirit. 
Not the subjective inner peace, that's totally true, but relational peace with others. Do you go out of your way to pursue peace with others, or are you more determined to make your point? God calls us to be peaceable in every way. Jesus assured us, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Chris Dish gave a wonderful evening sermon on this recently, and we're happy to help you find it if you'd like to listen. Peacemaking is blessed by God. In a world where wars and fighting just abound, his sons and daughters are to be marked by avoiding at all costs bickering and quarreling. Romans 12, 18 says it this way, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with all people. That means regardless of what other people do, you be about peace. Are you marked by peacemaking? On social media? Are, are you the, I don't even, I hope not, but are y'all are one of them ones that comments on everything? Yeah, but critiques everything, nitpicks everything. Listen, trolling for Jesus is not a spiritual gift, okay? It is fruit of the flesh. It is not good. Stop it, please, if that's you. What about at work? Are you the instigator of irritation or conflict? Or are you, do you attempt to diffuse things when able and to be a peacemaker? What about in church? Do you provoke problems or are you eager to maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace? What about in your home? With your roommates, are you a peacemaker or are you selfish and opinionated and difficult because you want things the way you want them? No, I'm not going to put the cups there. I put them here and that's how it is. Like it or leave it. Like, that's just not Christian. Don't be, always be looking for a fight. Husbands and wives, are your, are your interactions con contentious or kind? Think about why you engage with one another the way you do. Children, do you fight with your siblings, with your parents? Jesus calls us to love and to honor and to avoid quarreling. Parents, do you quarrel with your children? Or do you model for them peacemaking? Because they will remember. J.C. Ryle was one of my, is one of my spiritual heroes. He was a faithful English Anglican pastor, theologian who lived in the 1800s. He had five children whom he largely raised on his own after his wife was bedridden for five years and then died a premature death. Ryle was known for many things in his ministry, particularly though being bold and clear and courageous, especially against theological liberalism, which was ravaging the church. That war was painful for Ryle on many fronts and particularly on the home front. One of his five children, his son named Herbert, did not follow his father's theology, but actually got ordained as a, in, a, in the liberal church of England and opposed much of what his father, father taught. I, I'm sure, Ryle, that would have been very hard for him, but I want you to listen to the testimony of his son, Herbert, after his father's death. Speaking of J.C. Ryle. He was everything to us. He taught us games natural history, astronomy, and insisted on never being idle and carefully fostered our love of books. To us boys, he was extraordinarily indulgent. He loved them. He was tolerant to a degree little known or recognized. The high church writers sought to destroy his position by detraction. Much as he differed from me in many points, he never suffered the shadow of a difference to come between us in the intimacy of our affection. And since the time I went to school at the age of nine and a half, I never received from him a harsh word. Even though we disagreed on the most substantial things, there was never a shadow between our affection, he said. After his death, he, after all the brothers had died except for him, he says, the last of the five I remain, having two such loving brothers as few brother, men have ever had, never a quarrel, always affection and confidence. Dad never quarreled with us. He was not quarrelsome. He was confident, and we were confident that he loved us. Some things are more important than being right. You don't compromise truth 
That same J.C. Ryle would never say or said that you should never compromise truth on the altar of peace. That our lives are to commend Christ and peacemaking paves the way. Number six, be gentle. Remind them to be gentle. It means meek, kind, tender toward others. It's a posture of heart and word and, 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 and again, your, your posture. It's similar to the, to the previous, but this aims more at, at the disposition of your, your heart. It's a call for us to not insist on every detail, to be tolerant. Are you a tolerant Christian? Now, if I was Satan, you know what I would do? I would just make that a, a toxic word for conservative Christians who are like, I'm not tolerant. And in one sense, you should totally not be tolerant, right? Our, our culture has hijacked the idea of tolerance, where you now affirm someone's opinions and feelings and sins, and if you don't, it's bigotry. That is not the sort of tolerance that we're talking about. It is not loving to affirm sin that destroys people's souls and sends them to hell. That's, that's not love. But it's also not loving to be unyielding, to be unwilling to allow for disagreement over minor issues. If everything is a 10 for you, you need to learn to adjust that. Everything's not a 10. There's, there's grades and tiers, and there's a great book by Gavin Ortland, um, Choosing the Right Hills to Die On. It helps you to think through how do you navigate different levels of importance in, in issues. So yes, we are to judge because we're commanded to. We need it to be able to navigate life, but we must not be judgmental. A critical, pharisaical posture that, that, that critiques everyone to death. Seventhly and finally, show courtesy. Remind them to show perfect courtesy toward all people. It's an attitude of kindness and humility. Be humble toward all people. Now it's interesting here, in the Greek, the word all people, it means all. That's what it means. It means everybody. So there's no footnote here. Show gentle courtesy and humility toward people who deserve it who, or who are easy to have that attitude with. All people means all people. With your children, friends, family, parents, pastors, coaches, referees, bosses, police, government, all people. The most basic application of this is ensure that the only offense of your Christianity is the offense of the gospel. Not some sort of careless, corrupted, calloused speech and way of doing things. Remember, there's a wrong way to be right. You're to emulate Jesus. Now Paul gives all of this instruction because there's a temptation who for people like us who are enlightened by God's grace to approach other believers who are imperfect and to approach the unbelieving world who still love their sin in a way that does not please God. We can be marked by self-righteousness and hatefulness and anger and condescending and exasperation with people. But the antidote to have that posture and to have the posture that he's talking about right here is grace, which brings us full circle. We show God's grace to others by remembering God's grace toward you. Look at verse 3, which is our sermon for next week, but an appetizer. For all of these seven commands, you do this for we ourselves were foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and evil, hated by others and hating one another. The reason that you're submissive is because and the reason you're, you're able to be submissive toward others is because you used to be unsubmissive. You'd be obedient to governing uh, authorities because you used to be disobedient. You, 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 you aim to be ready for every good work because you didn't used to be. And you, you're, you're able to be gentle and, with people who, who aren't living the way that you think that they should because you used to be just like them, is what he's saying here. But when the goodness and kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that being justified by grace, 
we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life so that we may devote ourselves to good works. We show God's grace to others because God has shown his grace to us. And this is where we're, we're supposed to leave this text looking at Jesus who did all of this perfectly. We submit and obey to government rulers because Jesus submitted himself to the Father by submitting himself to governing authorities of the Pharisees and the Sadducees and Pilate. He, he did this. He said to the Father, not my will, but, but thy will be done. And he did all that, endured all the evil by the governing authorities and the religious authorities so that on the cross he could take the judgment that we deserve. We eagerly look for opportunities to do good works because Jesus, the very incarnation of God, his whole life was marked by good works. He took on a body so that he could touch lepers and heal blind people and eat with sinners like you and me and wash the feet of disciples who he knew would run away from him. We speak evil of no one because Jesus endured all of the, the, the evil speech against him, the slanderings that put him on the cross. And there he was reviled, but he did not revile in return. And he died for all the ways that we do, and then he rose, and now he gives us his spirit so that we don't have to be enslaved to that way. We avoid quarreling and are gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all because Jesus himself was gentle and lowly, meek and mild, tender and patient. We live the way that Paul has laid out here because we've met a man named Jesus. And he's done it all perfectly. And we don't try and earn our salvation by following him and keeping it all together, but rather we thank him for his perfect life in our place, for his death on the cross that we deserve, his resurrecting life that he now gives us, and by his spirit we can live this way. And God will use it to pave the way for the gospel so that many more can see and believe. So remember God's grace moves us to show his grace to others. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would give grace to each of us. Put it in any areas I've misspoke, would you clear that up? But in Lord, all the ways that we're clear according to what you have said, might you convict us in ways that we need to be convicted and that you would help us to be a people who are marked by the same sort of love that Jesus had. Might you use us, give us help, in the name of Christ.